Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. Guy kindly sent in a question to me. If you would like to record a question and send it in, uh, MP3 is the best format, but I can convert if you don't send it that way. You can send it to velocipodcast at gmail.com. And there is a very good chance that I will try to answer your question or maybe even make fun of you or just accept that you are right and I'm wrong. Because every now and then, I just straight up run out of ideas. So here's Guy. Hello, Peter. This is Guy. I was listening to a recent episode in which you were talking about the saying that only a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. And you were offering alternatives to a good guy with a gun. And I couldn't help but notice that not once did you mention the possibility that maybe a good woman with a gun or a good non-binary individual with a gun could perhaps stop a bad guy with a gun. And so, my question to you is, why do you hate women and the LGBT community? Hashtag stay woke. So I saw this as actually a very valid question. The problem is, my first instinct was to try to make some jokes and maybe lean into the hating women and the LGBT community as a response but realize that I perhaps do not have the comedic sense or ability to navigate those treacherous waters without making myself seem like a terrible human being and saying something that is honestly offensive to those communities. I don't know if women are a community. As you can see, I'm already having trouble treading water. So I'm going to do what every brave man has done before me in the world and just slowly back away from this question. And not just metaphorically, but actually physically back away from this question so that I don't have to answer it because I don't have an answer. Thanks. When I was 19, I actually started writing an epic poem, and this was actually in couplets, and the goal was to write something fairly absurd. Every hero has to have a tragic flaw, and the hero in my story didn't have a torso, so it was just a waist and a pair of legs that ran around with this Viking crew. Now, the crew found a myth about a ring that made half things whole, so they thought it was their destiny to go find this ring and thus fulfill some sort of strange destiny for the character and find their place in the annals of history. I didn't finish it. I wrote about 70 or 80 pages when I was 19, and then I started moving on to university and getting like things that I had to do in my real life. And recently it was rediscovered when I went back to visit my parents because I actually found the old book that I had been writing it in. So I decided to transfer that to a Google Doc, and I started working on it. And then I actually started footnoting the 
actual story I'd written because I it was supposed to be absurd. So it had a lot of jokes that maybe didn't make sense. So I could actually make fun of the fact that the jokes weren't very good or didn't make sense. And the footnoting started taking on more and more space in the document as it went on. And it became like a new format. My intent was that by the end, I was going to start telling two stories or have two things going on, one within the footnotes and one within the main story. So you can see I had very lofty and complicated ideas going on. Uh, and I've shown it to a couple of friends. I think it's one of those projects that I'll never actually finish because it would literally require me to sit down and map out this epic tale and work on it primarily full time for a year or two to, for it to be successful. And just the way life is, I don't have time to work on three or four projects because I have an actual day job. But I have shown it to a few friends and I was talking about it with a coworker and one of my friends who had read parts of it was trying to help me describe the concept and ideas and said, it's a very Peter story. Now, I at first felt like that was a compliment. If you go back a bunch of episodes, you'll actually hear one where I talk about a massage therapist who is doing a little bit of physiotherapy on me and said, because I do judo, I can handle a lot of electricity. Now, I at the time took that as meaning I'm really tough and cool and strong and I can handle a lot of electricity. But the massage therapist guy never said that taking a lot of electricity was a good thing. He just said that was something I could do. It might be a bad thing because I, my muscles are all dead and they don't react electricity anymore. When my friend said it's a very Peter story, I of course initially took it as a compliment. But then later in the day, I realized he didn't actually say that a very Peter story was a good thing. He just said it was a very Peter story. So it, it is a way of sounding like you're almost giving a compliment without saying something positive or negative. So this is something I'm going to have to go out in the world and try to clarify. Is a very Peter story a good thing or a bad thing? Now, you're, of course, the justification is some people will like a very Peter story and some people won't like a very Peter story, just like some people would like the content I put out here on this podcast and some people won't, which I can accept. But the comment has to have an intent, otherwise the comment would not be made. And that's the part I'm actually interested in now. So if you've ever made a statement like this, like it's a very someone thing, did you intend that as a good thing or not, is something I would like to know. So for the moment, just for my own preservation of ego, I'm going to consider a Peter, a very Peter story a good thing until it is proven otherwise. So Cora question, what are the Japanese police like? Because this is a sincere question, I actually feel like it deserves kind of a sincere answer. My experience has been there's actually like two kinds of police in Japan in general. And it's almost like they have community policing and patrols. So guys who don't deal with actual crimes on a regular basis, they tend to just talk to people and make sure things are going okay and help people out. These are the cops that will stop you and check if your bicycle has been registered because that's how little crime they actually have to deal with. They spend their time checking that your bike has been registered properly and licensed. And something that Western people don't realize is that in Japan, your bicycle has to be registered and licensed. So they stop a lot of foreigners and check. And it's to make sure that your bicycle isn't stolen. Now, there's another group that are dealing with crime on a more daily basis. And those would be the cops that I honestly never see or deal with. Because I've only ever interacted with police in judo clubs. Because the police in Japan are actually obligated to practice judo. 
It's just part of their training. So uh, we had some brand new young guys who were becoming cops join and they weren't very good and they needed to toughen up. And then some of the best guys I've ever practiced with have been long-term police officers. And so it feels like they have almost separated police into two things. The police that would need more sort of negotiation and people skills and the police who deal with more crime and investigative skills. So that's not to say that one group is superior to the other because the fact that you have this first group of community policing means the crime stats are low enough that the other group doesn't have to work as hard, but that other group is dealing with uh, what I would consider far more serious issues. Now, the police in general in Japan are actually taught to try to talk their way out of situations, not actually engage in any sort of violence. So they carry guns, but most police have never used their gun. They try to deal with people in civil ways overall. Uh, one of the stories I read a long time ago was about a man who was put in a car and he was put in the back of a police car and the policeman talked to him for six hours and then at the end of the six hour conversation shot him. Now I realize it doesn't illustrate my point at all, but the six hour conversation was what he was trying to solve this problem with the conversation instead of actually violence. But then he got so frustrated, he actually shot the guy. Shows there is a tipping point for every human being in the world. One of the things I recently learned about police or at least the rules governing the police in Japan recently is really interesting. They have a thing where you cannot cause policemen discomfort is what they would translate it to. And so basically this is a way for them to be able to arrest you even if they have nothing that you're being accused of or if there's no suspicion. So if a policeman takes your arm and you yank your arm out of his hand, you are technically causing the police officer discomfort so you can be arrested for that. So even if you haven't committed a crime, they can essentially engineer a crime for you to be charged with so they can bring you in and actually deal with you that way. This is the very labyrinthine sort of roundabout way that Japanese police deal with issues because if they suspect you of dealing drugs... They can pick you up and hold you for 24 days without telling anyone. Now, that doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And the scary part is their goal is to disrupt your drug distribution chain without actually having anything to arrest you with. So they can hold you and then all your buyers will go to other people or it might just dissipate and disappear. If you have a real job, you'll lose your real job. If you have uh, relationships with other drug people, like so I assume people who traffic to you and you who traffic to other people, your customers, you'll lose all that as well. But they can do all this without actually doing anything at all. So what are police like in Japan? Well, honestly, they are really good and really shady at the same time because they have all these weird laws and rules that they can enforce any way they want. And a lot of the rules, as I've done more sort of reading about Japanese law, are kept purposely vague so they can be applied in a variety of ways to benefit the police. So... You're not going to get beat up or shot by a cop in Japan. That would be very, very unlikely. But if you do get in trouble with the cops, they can do a lot of things to you that you wouldn't realize are actually legal because, again, you're not back in your home country uh, where you've watched Law and & Order and the rules apply. Those rules are all out the window. The rules are all totally different here, and that's what you have to be aware of when dealing with policemen in Japan, that you have no idea what your rights are, and they can basically abuse you in a lot of different ways anytime they want. So a Quora question, my four-year-old's art is terrible, should I tell her? So looking at this question, it feels like a bit of a troll to me. I'm thinking what they're actually asking is, can I be a shitty person to my 
kid. So there was one of my opening thoughts a long time ago where I talked about people being brutally honest. And they say they're being brutally honest so they can be really rude to other people and then have that kind of, well, I'm just telling you the truth as in my truth will benefit you as a shield they could hold up to protect themselves from any sort of backlash. So I'm just a brutally honest person. And this person's saying, can I be an asshole to my kid? Now, what I've found is for the brutally honest people, if you say something brutally honest back to them, they never take it very well. Even if you follow up with, I'm being brutally honest, because if you can do it, there's no reason why I can do it. This case should I tell my four-year-old that their art is terrible when, of course, the reality is that all four-year-olds' art is basically terrible if they're just normal kids. You could have a prodigy, but that's very unlikely. That's why they're called prodigies. If I was going to take this question seriously, I would ask, what would the goal be? So why would you tell them? So you don't want them to continue making any sort of art? You want them to quit? I mean, if that is your actual goal, you don't want your child wasting paper or something like that, yeah, you might actually want to make them feel so bad that they quit making art. Is your goal to help them improve? Well, having them feel bad about what they're doing isn't going to help them improve, so that's not going to achieve that goal. If you want them to actually improve in the quality of their art, you might have to sit down and do some art with them and show them some techniques and some different things that they could do. Uh, my son had to draw a big picture and I started teaching him about shading. And one of the things I did is after you draw some pencil, you'd lick your finger and you rub it and it smudges it out so it looks really nice. And that was a technique he learned. It slightly improved his art. I'm no artist by any means, but it was one of the things I knew and I could impart that knowledge to him. Telling him it didn't look as good as it could wasn't going to help him find the solution to make it look better. You have to provide the solution. There is the question of, do you just want to hurt your child's feelings? which is very possible and very real because the question sounds like you're an asshole. So maybe the point of being an asshole is to hurt other people because that makes you feel good. Well, yes, you can absolutely go ahead and do that. But what you're actually inadvertently training your child to be is an asshole to other people because they're going to learn that behavior, learn that style, that technique, and you are going to raise another asshole in the world. The problem with being an asshole is people don't tend to take you very seriously. So training someone to be an asshole doesn't tend to be beneficial to them or even you because when they get older and start asserting themselves, they're going to start being an asshole back. And the real scary part is what if your kid grows up to be a better asshole than you are because that's where you've put all your effort in training them. I would like to respond to the asker of this question. What is your actual ultimate goal of saying this fairly terrible thing to your child? And if someone criticized you in a similar way, could you take it? Because I believe you dish it out and you can take it, then it's kind of fair. But if you can't take it, which actually this question kind of the underlying thing implies, then I think maybe you should just shut your mouth and let your kid draw some pictures. So I went down a weird rabbit hole on the internet because I was thinking about Scooby-Doo and these 80s cartoons where you had groups of inexperienced, unauthorized people solving crimes, usually in random fashions. So Scooby-Doo is the archetype. It's the one that sort of set the stage for a successful kids cartoon where the kids get into sticky situations and bumble their way through it. Uh, and it's super fun and everyone loves it, except me. I didn't really care for it. But Scooby-Doo is the example. So the company that made Scooby-Doo, of course, tried to replicate that. So they came out with a bunch of sort of 
copycat shows with similar situations. So you had Josie and the Pussycats came next and it was a band and they went around on tour and everywhere they went on tour, something would happen and they would have to solve the mystery. They met an inordinate amount of mad scientists and supervillains, uh, despite the fact that they were just sort of a touring team band. And by episode 16, they actually started sending them to space. I have a theory about horror movies that when a horror movie jumps the shark, what they actually do when they've run out of ideas is they send the horror monster villain to space. So uh, for Friday the 13th, it took 10 episodes. For Hellraiser, it took about six episodes for them to end up in space. And Leprechaun, I think it was the third one because they'd already run out of ideas, so they go to space. So when Josie and the Pussycats went to space, in my mind, they were already kind of done. They decided that this formula shouldn't be given up on, so they went ahead and made the Funky Phantom sort of a crew. So this was three teens and two actual ghosts who travel the country solving crimes. Now, the dark part is the way the two ghosts died is never, of course, explained in the show, but it's actually kind of explained in the theme song. So what happens is this is during the Revolutionary War in America. You have these two guys who are fighting the Redcoats, and they, they need to hide from them. So they hide inside a clock, and they get stuck, and that's how they die. So the bit they sort of skip over is these two guys are in there together and slowly starving to death as they hide from the war. Ghosts would be particularly useful in solving mysteries because I just assume they have all the sort of ghostly powers. They can go through walls, they can sort of disappear and go invisible, and they can be anywhere they want to be. They can fly. I don't remember the show, so I think I've seen episodes of this, but I don't remember the show because this would have been when I was a child. But I don't know if they were able to interact with the real world. So the three teens could make up that part and you actually have a pretty solid team overall except they all sound like idiots so you have three teenagers and teenagers i'm sorry to have to say this are not going to be the greatest detectives and you have two ghosts that died because they were basically inept and they're helping them out so if maybe the ghost could follow instructions they might be a valuable addition but i think you should put them on a different team so another one that was really weird, three regular people and your special entity. So in this case, it was three girls and they ran across a man frozen in ice. And that's where you get Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels. And they travel around in a van and they've put a cave on top of the van for the caveman to live in because he's a caveman. So of course he can't live with modern conveniences. And he has superpowers. He's very strong. He can fly, but it's never really explained how or why because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. He's co fully covered in hair. Like if you imagine just a blob of hair with eyes and a nose sticking out, that was the character design for Captain Caveman. And he could pull anything that he needed out of his hair. Now again, the caveman isn't brought into modern society. He isn't updated in any way. In fact, he doesn't really speak. So he's just sort of a figure that has action. Uh, but that means they have trouble communicating with him. And why you would choose this person to help you solve crimes doesn't make a lot of sense. The ghost from the Funky Phantom, well, I mean, they have abilities that I as a human being don't have. So they could actually really help me out with solving crimes and mysteries. The caveman, while he does have some superpowers, the inability to communicate with him effectively means he's not really going to be able to help you in any real way when it comes to solving the mystery at hand. Now, the one in my mind that sparked this all off, because to me, this is the most inept team possible, was Mr. T. So there was a cartoon where Mr. T was the star, and what they did, instead of having be like an A-team situation from his other show, he was the coach of a gymnastics team. 
Now, Mr. T is not famous for gymnastics. He's famous for bodybuilding, and he was the bad guy in the first Rocky movie. But they decided that now he's in charge of gymnastics, and they go around solving mysteries as they go from gymnastics competition to gymnastics competition. So if you do a diagram of gymnastics competition and unusual crime, you'll actually have like a similar ratio as it goes up in certain areas. So you have lots of gymnastics competitions, there's probably lots of crime happening there. Now the first mystery they solved was that someone was smashing gold medals and looking for something valuable inside them. I mean, if these are actual gold medals, like the Olympics, the gold is valuable. So there's no need to smash them open. If it's like the trophies I got for judo, which are all made of plastic and painted gold, then there is nothing actually inherently valuable in the actual trophy. But you could, there is a lot of empty space, so you could put something inside it. So this is what kicks off their desire to solve mysteries wherever they go, is that someone has hidden something apparently in a trophy, and they need to find out who and what it is to solve the mystery. The abilities of a group of gymnasts don't necessarily equate to solving crime, like following up on clues, putting disparate ideas together, looking at the psychology of the criminal in question and trying to figure out what they think, what their motivation is. I don't think gymnasts would be my first choice for someone to do take on this kind of task. In a similar vein, there was a Karate Kid cartoon. Now, the premise of this show was that they were looking for a mini shrine that had magical powers that had been stolen. So basically every episode, Mr. Miyagi would get a lead on where they should go to try to find this mini shrine that had magical powers and get it back. And then he and Daniel and some girl who I don't know would show up and get really close to the shrine and maybe have to kick and punch some people using their karate skills. But then, of course, to make sure that the episodes kept going, the shrine had to magically slip through their fingers somehow. Maybe that was the magic part. It always slipped through their fingers. Oh, I just thought of that now. So then we get into what has to be the most complicated situation for solving crimes. And it's Turbo Teen. Now, it only lasted 13 episodes, but basically the idea is that you have this teenager and through an accident with a government laboratory, he is fused with his car. If he is exposed to extreme heat, he turns into a car. If he is exposed into extreme cold, he turns back into a human being. So think about the situations you have to create, just if you want to take yourself out of the world of the cartoon. But you are now in the writer's room and you have this set of powers. You have a boy and if he's really hot, he turns into a car. And if he's really cold, he will turn into a human. So now you have to create scenarios and situations where he has to solve crimes or fight enemies using his car-based powers. But his car, when he's turned into a car, isn't really any more special or powerful than a regular car. It's sentient, yes, but that doesn't mean it's indestructible. That doesn't mean that when he's a car, you can hurt, it's harder to hurt him. He can be smashed up and shot just like any other car on the road. My question then, which is never answered in the cartoon, is if he turns back into a human, does he retain that damage? Like if you smash his windshield, does that do something to his face? Or is that sort of like in the car's universe, his eyes? So I think after the first or second episode, it would actually get to a point where what do you even do with this kid? So you could have him turn into a car in embarrassing times, but then you have to expose him to extreme heat to make that happen. So it's really hard to even construct the humorous situation where he turns into a car uh, unintentionally. So after that, I started just looking at the weird ones. So Rubik the Amazing Cube. So the Rubik's Cube was really popular, and they actually did a kid's show where the... 
Rubik's Cube had magic powers, could talk to you while it was a solved puzzle. But if you mixed it up, he then wasn't able to talk sensibly and wasn't able to help you. So the kids, if they needed his help, something would happen and the Rubik's Cube would get scrambled. And then the kids were under pressure to solve the Rubik's Cube so that the Rubik's Cube could then use his magical powers to save or help the kids. So again, now I'm not even thinking about the cartoon. I'm thinking about the writer. The writers are now sitting down and thinking we have to come up with episode after episode where something happens to these kids. And these are quite young kids. These are like elementary school kids. Somehow the Rubik's Cube, the sentient Rubik's Cube gets mixed up so it can't help the kids. And then the kids have to solve the Rubik's Cube generally under pressure on some sort of time frame so that the Rubik's Cube can then save the kids. And we have to do this over and over and over again. Which takes us to the final sort of 80s cartoon where people just should not be doing the jobs they're doing, where the logic is just inept and these people should not be doing these things. We have Pro Stars. Now, Pro Stars is about three top level athletes who now go around the world fighting crime, helping children, and protecting the environment. The three people who are doing this are Michael Jordan, so premier basketball player. Bo Jackson, who played baseball and football, and Wayne Gretzky, one of the greatest hockey players of all time. Now, Michael Jordan was the leader of the group. He was really smart and talented, which is probably true. And somehow he was able to make a lot of complicated contraptions, and he spent a lot of time encouraging children to study. Wayne Gretzky was the comic relief of the group, and he always was thinking about food. And Bo Jackson was the sort of power of the group, so their first story with the Pro Stars is they come to the aid of Jimmy Hanks. I'm reading this off Wikipedia. When his father, Slugger Hanks, is captured by a mad scientist named Clockward DeLorange, who uses remote-controlled robots, including one of dead baseball star Cleats Robinson, as part of a plot to capture the commissioner of baseball. Now here's the question that I asked myself at first, is why would you want to capture the commissioner of baseball? If I'm a mad scientist and I have the ability to create robots that can play baseball, what do I need the commissioner of baseball for? I clearly have outclassed the commissioner of baseball as far as robotics, uh, science, and ability. And I could probably just sell the, the technology that goes into my robots and make more money than the commissioner of baseball ever could have dreamed in his lifetime. In episode three, the Purbots of Dr. Loeb, a mad scientist named Dr. Loeb, proposes a competition to the pro stars to compete against his Purbots for the fate of a girl named Jill. And again, I think one of the biggest problems that you have looking at this from any perspective is why do you want the pro stars to compete against the Purbots? And why does it have to be for the fate of a human being? You could probably just propose these guys, uh, please play against my purbots, I'll pay you some money, because again, I have enough money to make robots. I don't need to capture a little kid, kidnap a little kid, and risk lawsuits and jail time. So at first I was thinking, like, these kids in general are just not the right people to be solving crimes. Then as I looked into the abilities and powers of the different cartoon people, I started thinking that a lot of times it was so specific, it was crazy that the writers needed to, that the writers would be able to come up with more than a few episodes worth of material that actually even made any sort of sense at all. I know a lot of these things probably didn't make sense. They were just flashing lights to entertain kids on Saturday morning. As someone who has attempted writing, who has done writing in the past, I actually feel like these cartoons 
the premises lacked thought and forethought as in how are you going to get a successful long running cartoon out of this? Now, what I'm thinking is I actually have to do a deep dive into one of these cartoons. Just pick one, watch, because most of them only made one season and one season at that time was only about 12, 13, maybe 16 episodes. So I could probably watch them all in an afternoon and then do a deep dive into one of the series. But I, if I'm able to find the series, but if you have a cartoon that you would like looked into, please send questions and comments to velocipodcast.gmail.com. Because if I can find a place where I can watch these episodes, this is certainly going to become an obsession for me over the winter vacation. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast.